There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 346. And today in the show, I am joined by Arkansas hunter, content creator, and modern mountain man philosopher, Clay Newcomb, to discuss southern deer Canadian Bucks, and Bears. All right, welcome to the Wired Hunt Podcast, brought to you by Onyx. Today's guest is Clay Newcomb, and I'm glad to have him here with me today because I think giving these times, these these trying times here during spring of 2020, um, it's, it's kind of nice to just switch it up a little bit. While there's something to be said about normalcy, there's also something to be said for taking your mind off of some of the more negative things around you. And I think our conversation today can help us do that. Um, Man, I just want you all to know before we get into it, though, that I am thinking about all of you, praying for you, hoping the very best for you and your family. I hope you're healthy. I hope, uh, hope you're able to keep the bills paid, keep food on the table. Um, you as a community mean a ton to me and, um, you know, I I just hope that we can all push through this and come out the other side, healthy, happy, and, uh, doing as best as we possibly can. I'm really just pulling for everyone. Stick with it. Um, I believe in you, whatever struggle you might be going through right now. Um, if you're part of the wired hunt community, you've got, uh, you got a lot going for you. So that said, I do hope this podcast can help you take your mind off of whatever negativity might be out there right now, whether it's just the news or whether it's some kind of challenge you're going through yourself. This podcast, I think, can put a smile on your face because Clay Newcomb is an interesting dude, a fun guy, a great person to talk to. Uh, it's probably f- likely you're familiar with Clay, but if you're not yet, I think you will. He's making a great name for himself within the hunting community. Uh, he's a damn good hunter. He's got his head on a swivel. He approaches his his hunting and how he shares his hunting message, I think, in a thoughtful manner. And he's just a great storyteller. So from my perspective, those are good traits for a human being and, and maybe even better for a podcast guest. So Clay, Clay lives down in the mountains of Arkansas. 
where he is an avid hunter of all sorts of species. He chases coons with hounds, he hunts squirrels in the back of a mule, and he's of course hunting turkeys and deer and bears all across the country. Uh, He's a very serious avid deer hunter, but maybe even more so when it comes to bears. He is the owner of Bear Hunting Magazine. He's the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. He's the creator of the Bear Horizon YouTube series. And he's also the subject of a terrific new film put together by our friends over at First Light, documenting Clay's unique hunting lifestyle and philosophies. And in that film, a friend of Clay's describes him as a cross between Robert Frost, Aldo Leopold, and Andy Griffith. So, I mean, how can you not want to chat with a guy uh, with that kind of lead up? So that's exactly what I got to do. I enjoyed it. I think you will. It was everything I was hoping it might be. We discuss Clay's thoughts on the sacredness of hunting. We talk about the trials and tribulations of raising an outdoor family. We discuss southern deer hunting culture, southern deer hunting tactics, uh, trophy hunting, what that is, what that isn't, all the stigma around it. Uh, we talk about chasing big bucks up in Canada, some of the trips he's done up into the, the Great White North. We discuss the appeal of bear hunting. Uh, Clay's pitched to all of us to why we should give bear hunting a shot. We discuss eating bears and just a whole lot more. This one was was a fun change of pace, like I said. I think you're going to enjoy it. I can't wait for you to give it a listen. So without further ado, I hope you're well. Stay safe. And let's get into my chat with Clay Newcomb. All right, with me on the other side of the line today, I've got Clay Newcomb. Welcome to the show, Clay. Hey, Mark. Appreciate you making the time to do this. Um, I've been kind of keeping tabs on the stuff you've been putting out there on the web for a number of years now and and have enjoyed what I've seen, but uh, we haven't really got to spend much time chatting, uh, not in person this time, but you know, getting to have a, a longer conversation. So I'm glad we can finally do this. Yeah, my pleasure, man. You know, we bumped into each other at ATA. Yep. I don't know if you remember that, but uh, just for a brief handshake. But yeah. that's uh, that's about it. And um, no, yeah, it's good to finally connect with you for sure. It's funny that in this kind of digital world we live in, you can almost know, feel like you know someone just by watching their stuff or listening to their podcast or reading their things or following them on social media. And then when you bump into each other in person, that one time it's like, Oh, Hey, how you doing? And you think you're old friends. Um, I had that happen to ATA all the time. You see someone and, and you're chatting for a while. And then all of a sudden you realize, Oh, you know what? I don't think we've ever met in person. Uh, (laughs) A weird thing these days, but, uh, But, you know, I got to thinking about you recently. Um, You've been on my list of folks that I should talk to for a while, but I was reminded to reach out to you recently because of that very cool film that our buddies over at First Light produced, um, talking about your story. And I think I'm right about this. It was uh, the boys at Captured Creative that that did all that, right? Yes. So Jordan Riley came down along with Ford Van Fossen. He Ford works for First Light, yeah. and they were here in Arkansas for, I think, four days in February of 2019. So it was over a year ago that they shot that, and um, yeah, it was it was really fun having them here and and shooting the video was just it, it was it was a lot of fun, and um, I didn't really know what to expect from that film because they. They came down at kind of a, a time when not a lot was going on. Uh, you know, late February here, our deer seasons are still going on. Our squirrel seasons, our, our coon seasons, which that's all stuff that I'm 
doing and uh and they they kind of just said well that's what we want to do and uh, so i was super pleased with the film i mean jordan and those guys they'd have a hard time not making anybody look good <laughs> so i got to give them a lot of credit for telling a story but but I, but i was in my family as what well, was as well my wife was we were thrilled that they kind of captured what they did in the sense of the balance and families and you know i talked about a lot of stuff that wasn't on the film and so you know and you know how these films are made or, or maybe people do maybe they yeah. don't but i mean you, there's a lot of content that's captured and and really very little that's used yeah and so i was thrilled with the way it with the way it turned out and uh yeah i've been really fun so um i gotta tell you you and i are in a similar boat. And so I know, you know, you must be not quite as eloquent and intelligent and as good of a hunter as they make you look in that film. Because I say that because Capture Creative produced and edited my show, Back 40, and I'm not as eloquent or good a hunter as they make me look. Those guys are, are really good at what they do. So I do know that there's there's a little bit of movie magic there, but the 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 essence, the foundation's gotta be true. So that's uh that points to you being a very interesting individual based off of that film, Clay. It was it was well done and you obviously have uh have a great outdoor lifestyle that you've developed for yourself and your family. Um and that really that really intrigued me to to learn more about that. And something I've heard you talk about uh, and in a couple of different places is about this idea of of the sacredness of the pursuit I think is is a way maybe right. you would put it um can you just speak to me about why you feel that way about hunting and this this lifestyle you cultivated for yourself? um why do you think about it in terms like that? You know I had a guy i was I was talking to a guy last week from East Tennessee in I was talking to him about why that we were talking about this old man, this old Tennessee mountain hunter, and we had just interviewed him. And I went back. So it was a younger man and me and this older man. When me and the younger man came back, uh, I said, why, why was that important that we just talked to this old guy that to us had lived an extraordinary life? as a mountain hunter in East Tennessee. And he said, he said, what makes life worth living is that some things are just sacred. Some things are just set apart as things that we deeply value. And they could be nuanced things that maybe somebody else wouldn't understand. And to me, hunting has just always been that. I feel like that inside of hunters, there is this sense of sacredness inside of of all of us some people it's really strong other people's that people it might be it might be less but it just reflects our our value system i was sitting with an old we interviewed an old tennessee mountain bear hunter a couple of months ago and i was with it was two guys it was me and another guy interviewing this old guy and uh we talked to this guy and and he'd really lived an extraordinary life just hunting the mountains to him it was just a normal life and to his peers it was just a normal life and but to us 
you know, he was talking about the old days and the way they hunted and it was extraordinary. And I asked my buddy, I said, why after the fact, Mark, I asked him, I said, why was that valuable? What we just did and what we learned from this guy, because he didn't, he didn't teach us anything. I mean, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't teach us something that we didn't know about bear hunting, but, and, uh, my buddy Tracy said, he said, some things are just sacred and, that sacredness is what makes life worth living. And it was, it was so simple. And the way that he said it, it was just like, yeah, that, what that man's life and what he did in the mountains because of what I value is sacred to me uh, to, to honor that. And, and, you know, basically what we regard as sacred reflects our value system. And I know that, Ever since I was a kid, I mean, there's been nothing in my life that held the same place as as hunting. And, and as you would know, and as we would know as, as hunters, that's not just killing, but it's the lifestyle, it's the culture, it's the people. You know, hunting is really a whole lot more about people than we give it credit for. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, without, without peers, without those deep human relationships – Hunting actually loses a lot of value. And even when you go back to the foundations of hunting, hunting is about provision for family at the very core essence of what it means for a person to go out and harvest protein and bring it back is about this provision. It's about this relationship. It's about people. And that's what I keep going back to. I mean, I'm really interested in hunting culture and how hunting has shaped our culture and really how hunting shapes people. And I think like on a personal journey, that's what I am interested in is how has hunting shaped my life? Because it has in, in, in deep ways that are hard to even communicate about sometimes. But, uh, but in, in on the, on a very practical level, like actually pursuing wild game, that challenge is so primitive, so innate to human nature that to do that in 2020, in a modern, urbanized, civilized society is just such a rare human privilege that I think we have this window, this gateway back into really who we are as humans. And I think that makes us different. I think that makes us inside of modern society being functional, normal humans. It makes us something different. And I think it, you know, I think it makes us better humans. I think it makes me a better worker. I think it makes me a better husband. I think it makes me a better father, if it's handled right. I mean, obviously, anything that we're passionate about can be blown out of proportion and actually messes up our life in anything. Uh, but if it's if it's handled right, I think that that passion and things that we value, which in our case is hunting, makes us better people. So... How do you pass along this this value system or this this sense of sacredness that you have for for wild places and wildlife and 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 the way that these experiences have shaped you and made you a better person? How do you personally go about trying to pass that on to your family, to your children? Because I have I've got a young family, I have a two year old and a two month old now. This is something I'm thinking about a lot these days. Um, how do you how do you How's that part of your life? Because it because it seems like family is a, a very important thing for you. Yeah, that's a fantastic question, and I think that's the answer that really the the whole hunting community is looking for. And you know, I think that 
more than we could ever teach our kids, and this would be with any kind of value system in our life, really they become some reflection of who we are. So to me, the best way that I have transferred, you know, a, a love for the outdoors and hunting to my children has just been them observing the my life and, and, and being actively involved in it very purposefully. But I guess what I'm trying to say is more than what we teach them, it's who we are that influences them. And, uh, and it has come, you know, my kids, Mark, I'm, I'm 40 years old. We started having kids when we were pretty young. My oldest daughter's 18. So I've got 18 year old, 16 year old, 14 year old, and a 12 year old. And, um, all of them have been involved in hunting, uh, my oldest is not as interested anymore, but the three younger are 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 very interested in hunting and um, and I have I have made a diligent effort over the years to include them in almost everything I possibly could. I mean, I drug them around when my other buddies weren't dragging around their kids, and, and I think that's to be noted is is there is a sacrifice for anything, you know. But at the same time, I, I've, I've always had plenty of time for hunting myself and, and taking it serious. You know, the idea is that if you took a kid, it would be less serious or you might be less successful. And I've, I've always been very focused on success in terms of bag and game. I really have. But I've also been very focused on giving them the most possible exposure that they could. And so I think they got to see authenticity inside the parents and really see their heart and their true, genuine love and passion and respect. But they also have to be given the opportunity. And it goes back to even beyond a relationship in the hunting world. If your kids don't like being around you because you're a jerk, uh, they're not going to probably want to be around you when you're hunting and have a good time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And uh and I think that's where some people miss it is there, you know, their kids get up 12, 14, and they all of a sudden realize they need to get them involved in hunting. And a lot of the groundwork hadn't been done. And um, so, you know, I think it's a holistic picture of, of providing them that opportunity and and just being authentic, just having an authentic relationship with your kids, you know. There's this this inherent catch-22 or or – or, or there's this this risk factor, I think, in taking your kids out with you for all these things, taking them along for all these adventures. I'm making assumptions here, but I'm imagining there's this there's this always potential for them to see something or experience something or see you in a moment where hunting or you or this whole thing isn't as pretty as you want it to be. You know what I mean? There, yeah. something went wrong, or where you made a mistake or were, you know, it could be any number of things, but is there any moment like that or any mistake made or regret you have when you look back at your 18 years as a father, taking your children out there with you that you wish, man, I wish I could have taken that back or I wish they hadn't seen that or, or is it all for a reason? Did it all work out? Okay. You know, man, I've, I've certainly made some mistakes, you know, Mark, I, my father and I don't, I, I have no problem talking about this because he's heard me say it before, but my father, I, I call it the Gary Newcomb school of hunting hard knocks. There were three brothers and I was the only one that passed. Uh, my, my two brothers are not big hunters. They're great guys and I love them. 
they're not big hunters. They like to do some fishing and stuff. And my dad was just a little bit too probably hard on us. And it wasn't really, it wasn't because he was a jerk. It was just because his hunting time was so limited that when he hunted, he had to be super serious about it. And so I could have been burned from hunting because I had some really negative experiences as a kid. Uh, first time I ever deer hunted, Mark, uh, I was actually bow hunting. I was in the fourth grade. I could pull the weight limit. And uh, my dad took me out, put me up in a tree stand, you know, hour before dark. And I was scared to death. And, uh, and actually, I mean, cried, I mean, as a fourth grader. And uh, it was a very traumatic experience for me as a nine-year-old. And uh, I think a lot of, and, and, and my dad got upset with me. And uh, that could have pushed me away. And luckily, just, I mean, I, I just kind of had a fire for it and, and it didn't quite extinguish it. But so I grew up with this idea that, hey, you could, you could hurt these kids if you're not careful. So it's this fine line between making it enjoyable, but also not taking away the challenge. And I think the trend of parenthood right now is to take away the challenge and difficulty out of your kid's life and make them happy. And that trend is not sustainable for, for making good humans. I mean, so you, but, but also a father, a parent has to have a sense of where that individual child is at, how much challenge they can take and they want to take for the maturity level that they have and building a hunt for them, you know? So, you know, there's been lots of times we, you know, I mean, we used to, buy snacks and drinks and, you know, kind of make it easy. But at the same time, we might've had the challenge of walking a long way or staying out in the rain. And, and I, I made that honorable. My, my, my son who's 14 now, uh, his name is Bear. Uh, when he was six, I believe he was six years old. I decided to take him with me on the first day of Arkansas bear season and let him sit in a tree stand with me. We got in the stand and, and we sat for six hours in a lock on tree stand. He was right beside me, had him strapped in and it started to rain about three hours before dark and it rained until dark. And, uh, I, and he toughed it out and he basically, we made that so honorable to him that to this day he grins when my dad or James Lawrence, the guy that we were hunting with as well. Uh, talks about how how he struggled through that as a little kid and and so we we made the struggle honorable you know yeah, yeah that's great uh, i can definitely see see the the appeal or the i see how that would work and i've always thought about that that same fine line you have to walk between seeing hunting as something that you want to make fun for your kids versus seeing hunting as something that is a tool for personal development. And uh, a friend of mine had, had always talked to me about how, you know, an important thing for kids to learn, especially through outdoor activities, is the ability to become comfortable with discomfort. And I think that's great. But at the same time, you always hear these horror stories about how someone made it too miserable for their kids and now they never want to do it. So I think uh, your experience, your experience and example there is helpful. Um, when you're when you're thinking about all this or talking about all these things, it, it seems like you 
you value history. Uh, it seems like both in our conversation already and then just in seeing some of the the work you've put out there into the world, there's this awareness of the context that you're now a part of, both you know in our current space today and historically. Um, what, where does this, and correct me if I'm wrong on that, but where does this come from? What, what inspired you? Are there, were there books or films or people, anything that has stoked this fire within you to, to live a life like this? Can you point to anything or is it just your dad and, and happenstance? You know, I think to not understand where we have come from as hunters is, and to just participate kind of blindly inside of this, it, to me, kind of personally felt a little bit irresponsible. And so that's kind of my curiosity and intrigue about our past. And and, and I'm, I'm really intrigued about, um, I mean, what I think is interesting in people is, is, is a deep connection to place. And so I'm really interested in, in Arkansas and hunting here in the Ozarks and Washtenaws, as well as lots of other places. But just because I live here, like I go out in these mountains and hunt deer and bear and turkey. And there's just this, I mean, I just know I'm not the first one that's done this. And a lot of the ways that I think have been influenced by people that have come before me. And, and so I just really enjoy learning about, um, learning about Ozark history and Ozark hunting and, and kind of where we came from, because I think what we're trying to do, Mark, as a hunting culture, really, and whether people realize this or not, and, and some people wouldn't care, but I know inside the hunting industry, we're trying to define our relevance in a modern time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and it's easy to define the hunter's relevance in times past. And so I think we're trying to figure out, like, why are we still relevant? And, and and maybe I have a little bit of a persecution mentality being in, involved in the bear world so much because it is a, it's kind of the low hanging fruit for the anti hunting community. So we we receive kind of a lot of uh, persecution. Maybe a little bit hot of a word, but probably accurate. Um, so you know. We're just trying to find define our relevance, and I think that comes from our history. And you know, from a practical sense, like me liking traditional bows and mules and stuff, I think that's just a maybe a result of um, just growing up in rural Arkansas. What's funny is that my dad hates traditional bows. I mean, he he's just like, why would you do that? Why would you go backwards? Why would you limit yourself so much? So I didn't really get that from him. But it may be kind of one of the old father-son pendulum swing deals, you know, um, where where he likes something. So not to spite him, but just because traditional archery was something new. And, uh, and you know, we didn't grow up with uh, mules and stuff, but my dad always kind of thought mules were cool. And, and, and I, because I've looked deep inside of why I like mules and this kind of stuff so much anyway i think he really honored that kind of stuff in the in the culture he saw around him but uh he he was never into that kind of stuff really um he was in the backcountry hunting he he hunted a lot in the backcountry in arkansas and um i don't know i hope that answers your question mark yeah it does but it gives me another question which is 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 how do you answer that 
existential issue that you just described that we're all facing within the hunting world, which is which is our relevance. If if someone were to walk up to you today and say, the stuff that you're doing, the stuff that your whole world now revolves around, that you're teaching your kids, that you make a living from, how is that still relevant today? Wake up, man. Look at the world around you. You're a relic of the past. How do you how do you respond to that? Well, I think there's two two answers right off the bat is that historical precedence does matter in human cultures. I mean, in, in biological precedence, I mean, we are predators. I mean, that's a strong argument. We eat meat to stay healthy. That's a massively strong argument. And then you get into the ethics of using animal confinement protein versus a wild animal protein. And, you know, you can go down that trail. But to me, the, the linchpin, and I'm, I, I like that word. I've kind of been, uh, I used it just the other day. I've used it before, but I actually looked it up to make sure it meant what I thought it meant. But, uh, <laughs> I've been there before. <laughs> I've done that. The, a linchpin is, is something that is vital to an enterprise or an organization. And in the literal sense, a linchpin is a, is a pin that's put through the end of an axle to keep the wheel on an axle. The linchpin to me of our relevance is an understanding of the North American model of wildlife conservation and how because of hunting, not in spite of hunting, that we have the most robust big game populations in the world here in North America, despite urban sprawl, despite uh, modern civilization. I mean, so to me, that is our relevance is that, hey, what we've been doing for the last hundred years has worked to preserve wild places and to uh, and to preserve wildlife. And man, that's why we're relevant. And, and then and then because that's a real functional relevance. I mean, like, re- really, if somebody understood that now, people most of the time that aren't interested won't listen long enough to truly understand it because it's complex. I mean, it's it's weird to say we are killing animals in order to save them. You know, that's kind of an odd shaped pill. But, you know, sometimes the truth is hard to swallow. That's what I like to say is that it is an odd shaped pill. Uh, but if you listen long enough, it's I mean, North American model. And I've been reading this book by Valerius Geist and Shane Mahoney. Uh, ben O'Brien did a podcast with Valerius Geist. Yep. Um, incredible, incredible book. And as far as I know, it's the first and most robust piece of literature that specs out all the all the parts of the North American model. And, and, uh, so that's kind of fresh on my mind, but, uh, that's our relevance is that it's working to save wild places and animals and to feed people healthy, organic protein, like we've been eating for the last bazillion years. Yeah. So, so I'm going to keep on throwing out some devil's advocate or a, a typical response you might hear from someone who has an adversarial position to this, um, might be, well, you can say that, but all you guys really care about is the stuff that you can shoot. Or you say that, but then you look at another piece of wildlife like a wolf or a coyote, and all you want to do is shoot, shovel, and shut up and get rid of them because they're killing your deer. Um, right. How do you respond to that? You know, that's one of the criticisms of the North American model is that it has not taken into account non-game species. and But to me that actually proves our point even more, you know? I mean, where animals are hunted, they're valued 
and that value produces protection and management and those animals doing well in modern times. And so for someone to say, well, yeah, but what about, you know, the songbird that's, you know, being endangered right now and his habitat that's being tore up? Uh, I mean, I would say, well, maybe we should start a hunting season for that songbird uh, because then they'd probably do better. Uh, that's a joke. I'm, <laughs> uh, but really, that's the that's the logic. Um, and, I, you know, I would just say that's really the the depth that I could go into that, Mark, is that I would say you have just proven my point. So, yeah, sure, we've not dedicated our lives to saving this animal or that animal, but we have dedicated our lives to saving these, you know, these 29 big game species and all the small game species, rabbits, squirrels, quail, turkey, and and look how they're thriving, you know, so – yeah, it's a strong it's a strong foundation to stand on. And I think you can always point to the fact that most of those species are, you know, what what's often referred to as keystone species. So as long as if those are protected, then you have this trickle down effect that positively influences so many others. So but yeah, it's it these these are the questions that we're getting asked all the time now and probably even more so every decade from here forward, right? So it's it's good that there's people like you thinking about this stuff, and I'm I'm glad you got a platform to to share your perspective because I think it's a good one. It's a helpful one. Um, I think we need, you know, the the broader hunting community. I mean, Mark, think about it. You know, back in the well, I mean, it would have been kind of before our time, but like back in the '70s, nobody would have known a thing about white-tailed deer in terms of the level of knowledge that we have today about their biology and their needs and how they're managed and all these different aspects of whitetail deer hunting. But today the average whitetail hunter probably could take a test, a written test and get more answers right about deer, every aspect of deer than even the experts could in the seventies, you know, and, 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 what happened was there was a cultural shift. Media started focusing on whitetails, and that's, this is a great thing. And and then all of a sudden, 30 years later, we have this general base knowledge that's really high. I think that's what's got to happen for in the general hunting community for the stuff that we're talking about right here, the North American yeah. model. I mean, I didn't grow up knowing any of that stuff. Uh, I doubt you did either. Um, and it's like, that's gotta be on the tip of our tongue, not in a defensive position, but most people aren't defense. Most people aren't out to get hunting. Most people just don't know, you know, so your friends and family and the people you come into, if these things are on your mind and kind of part of what, how you think about hunting, they'll come out in the way that you talk and communicate and act and people respond to that when when they see that there's been some reasonable and intelligent thought that's gone into this and it's not just barbarians out trying to kill stuff you know yeah that's that's exactly been my experience too it's just generally curiosity and then typically surprised uh encouragement once they start to learn more about it so uh, speaking of curiosity then i want to hear a little bit more about something you alluded to a second ago which was this this culture that you grew up within 
uh, specifically maybe on the deer hunting side, because this is one area that I have not spent enough time in myself. So I just, you know, you see it a little bit in the media, you hear a little bit about it, but you don't know anything until you've lived it. Tell me about just what that hunting and deer hunting culture is like in Arkansas or your part of the country there. Yeah. So, uh, Arkansas would be a heavily forested area. I mean, you know, naturally it would have been almost hundred percent forested. Um, I grew up in the Washita mountains in some, in an area of big national forest. I mean, the town I lived in just about any direction that you drove, once you got out of town, you were in national forest. And, uh, so it was it was kind of uh, uh, what we would call mountain hunters. You know, a lot of guys hunted big national forest, hunted the mountains, and um, it, was, it was tough hunting. Um, it's it's way better today. There's more deer than there were when I was growing up, but but uh, there weren't many deer. And uh, guys, so there were two ways that people hunted. I mean, they were just kind of the standard, you know still hunter, tree stand hunter that was hunting sign in the mountains. But there were a lot of guys that ran dogs too. It's one of the few places in the country where you can still run dogs for deer. And so that was a kind of a big part of uh, the hunting culture. And and I, I wasn't big into running deer with dogs, even though I, I did and had, you know, as a kid, we did that. Um, but uh, yeah, so my dad started hunting in the early 1970s got a bow and and he describes it like uh he grew up in a fairly i mean a town of maybe 30,000 in western arkansas and to his knowledge there was just nobody consistently killing white-tailed deer with a bow in the early 70s around there you know a few guys had done it and they kind of became the go-to knowledge base but they really didn't do it consistently and, uh, and my dad's kind of personal hunting story and, and claim to fame, which ultimately Im- impacted me, was he wasn't a deer hunter. His father wasn't a deer hunter. His father was a hunter, quail hunter, but not a deer hunter. Is he just went out in the woods and just started pounding around and found out that deer ate white oak acorns and found out that if you found a white oak acorn tree that had uh, – about 10 piles of deer droppings under it, you could hang up a stand and kill a deer. And uh, he started consistently killing deer with his bow. And uh, he just he just loved it. He just loved it. And he still does. To this day, my dad camps and hunts public land in Arkansas. And there is nothing that gets him more excited than a white oak tree dropping acorns with deer droppings under it. And... Uh, <laughs> the good stuff yeah yeah and so i grew up uh just bow hunting dad wouldn't let us hunt with a gun um he was like if you're gonna be a hunter you're gonna be a bow hunter and um it wasn't anything against guns that's just what he did you know so that's what he wanted us to do and um yeah so that that was kind of the other side of the gary newcomb school of hard knocks was that we we had to learn to bow hunt and it was years before I killed a deer. I mean my friends were killing deer with guns and it just eat me up, you know, and I hadn't killed one and but finally I did kill one and, and after I killed one I the you know the the string of success started to happen more regularly. And um yeah, so th- really I started off as a deer hunter. 
I really did. And still love deer hunting just as much today as I ever have, you know. So what's what's the deer hunting like in that neck of the woods now today? You said it's better. Um, what, is that how you still hunt? Do you look for a, for a white oak, find some droppings, and set up underneath it? Or, or how do you go about it now after you've been doing this for so many years and grown yourself as a hunter? Um, how do you approach it? So there's there's three ways that we're hunting. Dad, when we're hunting in, in deeper southwest Arkansas, you start getting into the Gulf Coastal Plain of Arkansas, and it's a lot of timberland. So there'll be these massive clear cuts and pine plantations, and they'll leave hardwoods along the creeks. And when you're hunting down there, really the only place to target deer is along those creek bottoms where their white oak acorns fallen or whatever kind of oak is bearing fruit. Um, and so down in that part of the country, and that's where my dad hunts, man, we would, we, we wouldn't really hunt funnels necessarily. We wouldn't hunt saddles. We would hunt individual white oak trees that were dropping that day and had fresh deer sign. And, but I don't hunt down there with him as much in that setting. You move up 40 miles and you get into the big national forest and there's less deer in the big national forest. There's more deer down in the clear cuts and pine plantations a little bit further south. Um, less deer in kind of the mature oak hickory pine climax forest of the Ozark and Washtenaw Mountains. And uh, much, much the deer population is way lower just because of the habitat. They The last 20 years, they hadn't logged as much. And uh, when I hunt there, Mark, I'm hunting terrain features. Um, food, food is usually pretty broadly dispersed because you got these massive contiguous stands of hardwoods. And so if the acorns made, then there's acorns everywhere. Or if let's say the acorns just made on tops of the ridges for whatever reason, well, there's acorns on every ridge top. And so what I would be looking for is for buck sign, you know, certain ridge tops, saddles, fingers, heads of hollows that had buck sign and, and wherever that buck sign would be, you know, typically they're making that sign there because they're traveling there because there are does there. And so we're hunting a lot more travel corridor type areas in the mountains. Um, and our mountains down there, close to 3000 feet and can be really rugged and steep and wind is really difficult. Uh, in the mountains, the wind just swirls I mean, it's just so hard to get a predictable win. That's what makes it so difficult. Um, so that's kind of my national forest hunting. And then the best deer that I've killed in Arkansas, I've come off private land. Um, and up here close to where I live now, so I'm talking about three different spots here, where I live in northwest Arkansas now and have for the last 20 years, I've uh, hunted pretty extensively on private land. And here we've got cattle pastures and hardwood timber. And these cattle pastures, you know, sculpt the land in such a way that travel corridors are much easier to identify just because it's not all woods, you know. And uh, so I'm hunting pinch points, you know, just like funnels in between cattle pastures. You know, I've done some food plot stuff. Uh, we can we can bait deer in Arkansas, and, uh, and I'm not above – uh, 
baiting some deer at different times and uh and even using that as a way to take inventory on a property and then hunting the deer somewhere else um so uh but we have some good deer in arkansas um we really do uh every year they're taking boon and crockett animals out of arkansas not it's not common um yeah what what kind of what kind of goals do you have when it comes to deer hunting there? Because I know, I know I've seen you do some hunting up much farther north in Canada with a pretty discerning eye as to what you're going to shoot. What do you, uh, what's your mindset down at home? Are you just filling the freezer with the first thing you see or do you hold out for, for something else? What's, what's that for you? So in about 2005, no, it was 2004, uh, started uh, i had a goal to just kill a three and a half year old buck or older in the ozarks with my bow every year that was my goal i didn't care if it what it looked like just if i judged it to be three and a half and you know the buzzword these days is four and a half as we all know all good deer hunters know now um but back then it was four and a half and uh, and uh i i maintained that goal for 10 years and did that probably seven or eight of the 10 years. And, uh, and now I might even be, I don't know if I'm more picky or less picky because I'm, I cherry pick where I want stuff to happen down in the national forest where I've targeted the last five years. I am just after a mature animal. I, and, and sometimes those deer don't have big racks and uh, I'm trying to kill a deer down the national forest. Up here at home, I mean, I'm probably looking for a Pope and Young class type deer. That 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 would get me pretty excited. I mean, I would I'd spend my season and hunt him like he was a Boone and Crockett if he had 125 inches of antler. Every every couple of years, I'll get a really nice deer on camera. Um, couple of years, I've had. You know, in 20 years, one time, well, once I killed, I killed a 169 inch deer here close to my house in 2007. Um, and uh, one time I was hunting a deer that my neighbor ended up killing that ended up scoring in the 180s. But in 20 years, those are the two big ones. And most years I'm hunting 120 inch deer. Yeah, sounds like sounds like here in Michigan. That's your typical deer that that might reach maturity is going to be somewhere in that ballpark. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or... You open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. 
Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. So how do you go about, like, what's the switch you make when shifting from shooting anything to then trying to kill that three-and-a-half-year-old or now the truly mature deer, whatever that is for you down in the National Forest? Um, what are the things that you started doing differently when you made that that you graduated to whatever that, to that new challenge for you, what, what has to be done different? That's a good question. Um, you know, I guess you just have to be okay with not being successful. I mean, I haven't killed a buck in Arkansas in at least two years, maybe even three. And that to me would have been totally unacceptable, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and, and, and I don't ever want to lose that, drive to to be successful and even defining success as taking an animal i mean I, I i think that's okay to do that it's not all of what success is but but i think the older i have gotten the the easier it has become to you know short-term sacrifice for long-term gain so rather than shoot that lesser deer i'm okay with i'm okay with waiting and i'm okay with committing my season to a really difficult place on purpose by choice for the purpose of personal limitation, hoping that when I do kill an animal there, it's going to be really awesome. Mark, this is, I, I almost had this revelation, I think it was two years ago and it, it like startled me and made me laugh too at the same time. But so I live in Northwest Arkansas. I drive two hours South to probably some of the most difficult whitetail hunting there is. I mean, there's probably other, I know there are places that are as hard and probably harder, but not many. I mean, it's just not great hunting. And I could drive two hours north and be in southeast Kansas. <laughs> Literally, yeah, what are you doing? I could be in southeast Kansas in an hour and a half from my house, maybe hour 45. And uh, we drove up to Kansas on a family trip and I was just, I just realized how short of a drive it was to get into really some of the 
premier whitetail hunting in the country. And I turned to my wife and I said, I drive two hours the wrong direction to deer hunt. And, uh, <laughs> but I love it, man. I do. I, I would, and see, and this is where media doesn't translate. Like one day, and I have not killed that big national forest buck. That's really become a goal that's hit me pretty hard in the last three or four years. Uh, I've dedicated m- most of my whitetail hunting kind of since I've been an adult um, to where I lived up here, which I, my access points up here are private land. And I've taken a lot of nice, nice deer on private land up here. So now I'm kind of focusing on public. Like that's that's just where I want to kill it. And one of these days you'll see some video of me, Mark, killing a 123-inch buck. And I will you will have thought that I killed a Boone and Crockett by the way I was acting. And it's because of where I killed it and just the personal connection I have to that place. And that's valuable, man. That's valuable. And I think that's sort of what some of the hunting media sometimes takes away from us or or certainly has is that you see, you know, we all know the narrative, you know, you see these guys killing big deer on TV and, and heck I go to Canada and shoot big deer and it's awesome. I love it. But you see that and that devalues, you know, what you have access to. So I think everybody's got to take inventory of really what they have access to and challenge themselves on that. However they see fit that, makes them a better hunter and just satisfies them, you know? Yeah. I can a hundred percent relate to, to what you're saying there. Something I'm kind of curious though, about just better understanding how you think about this stuff is this whole idea of, of quote unquote trophy hunting. Uh, Cause this is something that I think about a lot for myself too, because I self-impose different goals on my hunting and I am quite particular about what deer I'm going to choose to shoot or not. And you'll sometimes get these accusations, you know, you're a trophy hunter or why are you a trophy hunter or something like that. And I, and I don't like that word, I think, because it has all these very negative connotations now. I feel like especially non-hunters, when they see that, they assume something much different than what is experienced by someone like me who might be a selective deer hunter or whatever it might be, a goal-oriented deer hunter or whatever. Um, I'm just kind of curious how you how you put words to that, that choice you've made. Well, and Mark, you may have heard this before, but, but maybe, maybe others wouldn't have, but I, I'm not afraid of that word trophy hunting because if we get down really to the, the the original definition, you know, trophy hunting is what saved North American wildlife. I mean, this idea of indiscriminate killing of the 1800s and this market hunting culture where if it's brown, it's down, females, juveniles, whatever was killed. You know, the Boone and Crockett C- Club was formed in 1887, and they they basically quantified – what a mature male species of all the animals that we hunt were. And yeah. they assigned value to the attributes of antlers and skull size that were that of a mature male species of that animal. And so they were the first guys that said, hey, it's officially cool to kill the big ones and let the juveniles and females go. I mean, they they were the ones that did that. And 
we now reap that inside of our culture. And obviously that has been taken out of context and has been the pendulum has been swung really far in certain scenarios in hunting. And it's real easy to smear somebody that goes someplace and takes big animals. Um, so I guess what I say when, if somebody were to say, Clay, you're a trophy hunter, I would say, if I was being facetious and trying to pick at him, I would say, you betcha I am. And that's why, and that's what saved North American wildlife and began my spiel. Um, but I, I think there's honor in being selective. And, you know, I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to be selective for the small ones? You know, I mean, right. Uh, and I, and I, Mark, I know I'm ta- I'm preaching to the choir talking to you, but I, I would point people back to, to be selective is, self-imposed limitation which is good for everything involved it's good for all the animals that we pass it's also good for a human to to have self-restraint purposeful self-restraint so i I, you know i just have no problem being selective and trying to target the old ones you know and, and and obviously you get back even to the biology that an older mature male has already contributed to the gene pool his extraction from the population results in really very little loss from the overall population you know you take out a female you've taken out a lot of possible production for generations to come and and, uh you know and i know we're not talking about shooting bucks or does and and in most deer numbers we're trying to reduce herd numbers so that's irrelevant but with bears that's really relevant people are like well why are you shooting the old one and uh and and it's it, it really makes sense if you and talk someone through it, you know, without sounding like a jerk. <laughs> yeah, I heard you say something in, in one of your videos where you said something along the lines of, someone will call it trophy hunting, I'm going to call it being a conservation-informed hunter. And I liked that. I think that that speaks to that context that uh, is important to understand when it comes to these decisions. And many times people don't see it, but there's there is thought and there is regulation and there is conservation and science behind a lot of this that uh, that leads to a greater good in the long run too let alone the individual um accomplishment or growth that you can take from that experience too so i hear you on all fronts speaking of uh trophy hunting though or big deer i know you also head up to canada you do this uh, i don't know how long you've been doing it but it seems like for some number of years now you've been heading up to canada i know manitoba for sure maybe saskatchewan um tell me about that a little bit because i've i've always a lot of people dream of of doing the canadian deer hunting thing um but you've you've lived it is it everything that uh we imagine it might be you know Okay, so I've been I've hunted Manitoba for whitetails the last three years. So that's been my that's been my experience with it. Th- th- it's kind of a complex question. Manitoba about ten years ago experienced a pretty dramatic uh, loss in deer numbers just because of multiple really tough winters. So their population is in recovery right now. And is really just now getting back up to really good numbers. Uh, Manitoba is has not been the target place for big whitetails. Typically, Saskatchewan and Alberta are. That's what you hear about. Um, and 
that is primarily because you can hunt deer over bait in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and you cannot in Manitoba, which I actually like. So Manitoba has never been totally on the radar of the big game hunts, uh, the, the big game, you know, the big whitetail hunters. Um, but Mark, man, we're going to release all our secrets and all these camps are just going to fill up. <laughs> uh, because of that, Manitoba hunts are, are, are pretty darn cheap. Uh, you know, where the Saskatchewan and Alberta hunts are in demand more because higher success rates because you can hunt over bait. And, uh, so the hunts are more expensive. Um, I've taken three incredible deer the last three years in, in Canada, one with a bow, uh, two with a muzzleloader. And, oh, man, it's one of the fav- my favorite things that I do. And it's partly because of the guy we go with. So Tom Ainsworth, is a, he was a longtime bear hunting magazine advertiser. So he was a bear outfitter. He retired and sold his bear business but still had these whitetail tags and he has access to thousands of acres in southern Manitoba of private land, just ag country. Um, I've never hunted Iowa, but, I mean, for all general purposes, I mean, it'd kind of be like hunting Iowa. I mean, you know, big crop country. Um, not They don't have the funnels quite like uh, – it's either it's, – it's kind of this big bush country, as they call it, which would be big blocks of contiguous timber – and then these big blocks of ag, you know, and, uh, but to go up there and, and think you're going to kill a Boone and Crockett animal is probably pretty far fetched, at least where we're hunting. That being said, last year I killed a deer that was just under 160. Uh, I say it was 160 just for, just because it's easier i mean it scored 159 and seven eights something like that uh always round up in favor round it up yeah so you know 160 inch deer um i've taken several people up there with me just friends and they always are disappointed and i want to just kick them in the shin because they're like okay so we're going to be hunting like 180 170 inch deer and i'm just like no we're not that they're, they're just probably not there. You could kill one that big, but probably won't. Um, and the truth is those guys that are a little bit disappointed that we're not hunting 170 inch deer go up to Manitoba and flip out when they see a 140 inch deer with that's just massive and chocolate horned and a beast, you know, a 250 pound animal. Um, most guys are way happier with, a quote unquote, lesser scoring deer than they realize, especially when it has mass, you know? Um, but, uh, no, I, I killed 160 inch deer and then 152 inch deer with my bow. And then I killed a deer that I don't even want to say the score, but if you saw this deer standing beside either one of the deer that I killed, you wouldn't have known which one to shoot, but the deer only scored in the one thirties. A big gnarly old eight point. Um, golly, really, if if the one sixty, the one fifty, and the one thirty were standing in the field, you would have to really look at them to know which one to shoot. Uh, they were that big. Uh, yeah, I've seen them all, and they all are jumbo. I mean, they're dandy bucks, all three of them. So I certainly can understand what you're saying. Yeah, it, but people that don't that just think about score 
you know, wouldn't really understand that, but, but no, it's, it's a, a lot, it's a lot of, uh, we see a lot of deer up there. I mean, when I first started hunting Canada, I thought I would sit all day and see two or three deer. Um, that's not been my experience. We're, we're seeing a lot of deer every time we go, you know, 10 to 25 deer a sit. Uh, we're not always sitting all day. Um, Tom guy we hunt with, he likes to just hunt three or four hours in the morning, three or four hours in the evening. And I end up usually sitting all day every time I've been up there for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, you, you, you can do pretty good when you do that as well. Um, but you know, it's kind of classic stuff sitting in a box stand. If you're rifle hunting, uh, I killed the, the, the bow buck out of a tree stand obscure places to hunt man if you're if you're a pretty proficient deer hunter you know down in this part of the world and you go up there it'll blow your mind where you can kill deer up there i mean when you know and it's an outfitted hunt uh but tom is real good about letting you just kind of do what you want and kind of collaborating with you but the second the first year i went up there mark tom had seen a big buck in a field he was just like, Clay, this morning I saw a big one right out there. He said, I think we ought to go hang a stand out there. And I was like, oh, okay. And, you know, I was thinking, this isn't going to work. And uh, we went to the back corner of this field. You could see a half a mile in front of me. And there wasn't any deer sign to speak of. And we just threw up a ladder stand, drove the truck up to the corner of this field, threw up a ladder stand. I climbed up in the tree, and he drives off. And I'm just sitting there thinking, there is no way a white-tailed deer is about to walk past me, number one, and not see me sitting in this tree 12 feet off the ground in a poplar with no <laughs> leaves. And number two, that a mature buck is going to walk by within 40 yards of this tree. And man, in an hour and a half, I'd killed that 150-inch deer. He never even looked at me. I mean, if that deer in Arkansas would have spotted me in a flash, I mean, those deer are just, they're just different. I don't understand it fully, but they are not nearly as aware as our deer. <laughs> nice to go to a place where they're not quite as uh, pressured and constantly on edge, that's for sure. Yeah, I know it's like that where you hunt, Mark, super yeah. edgy, pressured deer, big time. Yeah, it's, it's nice to enjoy the other side of things every once in a while. Um you mentioned that this this place that you went, uh, Tom Ainsworth, used to be an advertiser on the bear hunting side of things, which which we have to talk about too, given everything you're doing with bear hunting. And this is typically a, a deer hunting podcast, but I know that there's a lot of folks with aspirations of branching out and trying new things, and, and I too. And bear hunting has been one of those deals that has been on my radar for a long time. Um, I've only bear hunted once and it was just for a couple days out in Montana. Um, have wanted to spend more time doing it, had plans to possibly do it this year, but that's now in the can because of everything going on with the travel lockdowns. But bear hunting has been one of those deals that has kind of lingered in the back of my mind as something that I say I want to do and I want to do the activity. But I have questions around if I want to pull the trigger once I finally get to that point. Because I find bears, I mean, I find every animal fascinating, beautiful, 
I love deer, these, these animals that I hunt and kill all the time. But for some reason, there seems something a little different. I don't know how to quite put a finger on it, but with a bear, um, a black bear or grizzly, I think I'd probably feel even more so with a grizzly. Um, something something unspeakable, I don't know, that just would give me pause uh, about doing that. At the same time, I still want to go out and try. So I'm, I don't know where I stand or on this. I don't know what, how I would react to the moment. But I'm just kind of curious if any of that resonates with you. Have you ever struggled with something like that? Do you, do you ever find yourself thinking, do I really want to in that moment? Because you're obviously, uh, you care about these animals a whole lot. You're fascinated by these animals. Does any of this make sense or do I sound like a wacko? Well, if I hadn't heard it before, Mark, I would think you were a wacko. But because I've heard it before, I don't. Um, <laughs> just <laughs> laugh, man. You're supposed to laugh. <laughs> I'm laughing. There you go. There you go. Okay. Um, now, you know, I, I never, I never had that feeling. I, I just haven't. And I've found that some percentage of people describe bear hunting just like you did, Mark. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, not everybody has to want to kill a deer or kill a bear, excuse me, to, you know, if they're a hunter. I get it, you know, I get it. But I but I don't get it in the sense of I've never had any trouble with the idea or the action of killing a bear. I mean, every time I've ever seen a bear from the first one I ever saw, I mean, there was this deep respect. Uh, but there was also this predatory thing inside of me just like i would like to kill that bear and eat it um that <laughs> and, I, and i think that's just that spectrum inside of all of us that everybody's just built a little bit different but but it's also what we've been we've grown up around you know i think if you were around some bear hunting and some bear hunters like it would probably quick pretty quickly begin to make sense and then yeah. when you finally had some bear you know you you harvested a bear, you butchered it, you you had some of that meat, really saw how good it was. Maybe maybe understanding some of the history of bear hunting in North America puts it into context as well. Um, all of a sudden, I think the, the, the things would start to line up and it would become in your mind just like killing a deer, just like killing a squirrel, just like killing a turkey. And really, it's no different. I mean, in... And here's the thing, I guess the it's not the danger, it's just the challenge of bear hunting that we have to work with from a kind of a philosophical standpoint is that for whatever reason, bears are easier to do with what you're talking about than something else. I mean, if I were taking you squirrel hunting, Mark, and you'd never squirrel hunted, uh, you know, you wouldn't be like, I mean, most likely you wouldn't have any trouble shooting a squirrel. <laughs> yeah. But for whatever reason, people do have a little bit of, trepidation with killing a bear it might be genetics and part of us that you know tip i mean we were designed to hunt you know the bigger populations of animals no well, not designed but i mean human cultures have lived off ungulates more than they lived off carnivores and omnivores i mean so even like from a evolutionary standpoint it's almost like you know like we lean towards that being a game animal but inside the current context of black bear populations thriving in North America, um, inside of us now knowing how to handle bear meat so that it's safe to eat, uh, 
you know, there's like all these cards that fall into place. And it's like, oh yeah, this is, this is, this is the perfect animal to hunt and to kill. And, uh, and Mark, I, I, I say this a lot too, from a, if we're talking philosophy, really there's not another big game animal that we utilize from a wildlife commodity standpoint more than a bear. I mean, and here's my argument with that. We use the meat, we can render down the fat and granted, not everybody does that, but more and more people are rendering bear fat and finding all kind of great uses for it. So we're using the fat and then probably 90% of the bears that are killed are their hides are tanned. And so you, you back that back into whitetail deer and nothing against whitetail deer, but probably 4%, 2%, 5% of whitetail deer hides are tanned. Nobody's rendering fat off a of deer. You're pretty much taking horns and meat, you know. Uh, so if from a wildlife usage standpoint, we use more of a bear than just about anything else on a big, broad scope, you know. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great point. Um, but it also then brings to mind one of the perplexing things I've found about the regulation of bear hunting in America. Oh, okay. And that revolves around salvage requirements. Yes. And that most, and I, I'm, I'm no expert on this, so I'm just taking this from things I've heard in conversations, so I know you'll, you'll understand this better than I do, so correct me in all this. But as I understand it, some states do, do not require you salvage meat from a black bear kill. And in Alaska, at least most places, I think this is right. I've heard the same thing applies that if you kill a grizzly, you don't need to take the meat. And many people do not. Um, tell me if I'm right on that first off. And then secondly, uh, why is that the case? How is that the case? How is that defensible? Yeah, well, you're right. It, I believe uh, there's just a handful of states in the lower 48 where you don't, where wanton waste laws do not apply to black bears. And it honestly, that's got to change. I mean, I, I am a massive proponent and, and I would imagine that in the next 10 years, we will see all that change. We, we, it needs to be regulated just like any other game animal. So that is kind of an antiquated thing of the depredation vermin mentality past of you know i mean not that long ago there were bounties on bears in a lot of states right. and mountain lions and stuff you know so they just weren't viewed as a as a game animal so mark you're exact you're 100 percent right um and and ultimately that's just got to change and you know from a again kind of going back to this idea of a persecution mentality kind of shaping our worldview in the bear world is that uh um the well shucks I, I lost my train of thought mark i got distracted looking out the window here uh, that's okay you you were you're you're making a good point though about the fact that that does need to change because because obviously i and i, I want to talk i want to hear a little bit more from you on this note but there is this old myth that bear meat's no good and people are seemingly finding more and more often that that's not the case in most cases um so I, I'm glad to hear that you think that will change. It, it seems that's hard to defend our hunting of an animal if we're not taking its meat in in that kind of situation. So uh, so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. No, what I, what 
I regained my train of thought. What I was going to say, Mark, is that uh, persecution mentality of bear hunters. There was a fairly recent study done that said, like, in the high 70th percentile of Americans were okay with modern hunting if it if if we use the meat for food. So that's a big challenge in the narrative of bear hunting, which we're trying to change. Is that hey, we're eating these animals, and so that's where the laws have to catch up with what we're doing in modern times and and you know in the last i mean really the last five eight years ten years you know eating bear meat has become a lot more popularized people have started to experiment with it more and uh the narrative's totally changing around bear meat and uh, it's really good you know yeah so talk talk to me about the next step of that because definitely it seems like there's been a lot more momentum around eating black bears, uh, but you hear much, much less about grizzly. And now with the uh, whole debate raging around the endangered species listing and delisting of grizzlies, this is something now that's going to become – you know, it's going to continue being an issue as that debate continues as folks say, well, if we're opening up a grizzly bear season but you're not – you know, you're just doing it for a hide and a skull and all that. Um, talk to me. Uh, what's your experience with that? I know you've killed a grizzly. You've killed a brown bear. Um, have you eaten brown or grizzly bear? What's that taste like? Is that what do you think? Honestly, the brown bear is a different story to me because they are highly carnivorous, and so you know, it's kind of like. It goes back to even like predator hunting. Well, it, it goes back to why we're hunting them from a conservation standpoint. Um, you know, like where I killed the brown bear in Alaska, that was a two bear area. Uh, I could have killed two brown bears as a non-resident because it was a moose. It was a targeted area where they were trying to get moose to come back. So many brown bears, they were hammering the moose calves. And there's tons of research on that. Tons of research. They've they put uh, video cameras on brown bears and have captured individual brown bears killing up to 17 moose calves in a single season. Um, like, so it goes back to, you know, we, in the, in the, one of the tenets of the North American model is non-frivolous use of wildlife. Well, there's some wildlife that we take and the primary purpose is not meat. And I think that's okay. Like if I go out and shoot coyotes off my property, um, you know, I'm not shooting that animal for meat and, and, and I'm just kind of okay with that. You know, uh, when we coon hunt now we do eat coon some, but we are primarily not harvesting that coon for meat where he's a fur bearing animal, you know, we're harvesting him for his fur and his absence from the landscape benefits all these other species. So grizzly are a little bit different and it's man, it's a hot button and I don't have my narrative really polished. Again, back to the idea, why are we hunting brown bears? They will, they will shoot brown bears out of helicopters if hunters don't go in and kill brown bears. So if brown bear meat, in some cases, is almost inedible because that animal's been eating fish and different things, then does that mean that we shouldn't hunt them and that we should let somebody shoot it out of a helicopter uh, because we're not eating the meat? <laughs> you, you see where I'm going? I mean, yeah, like, it's tough. And so so there – the brown bear is a different story. Now, if they opened up a season in the lower 48 for grizz, I'd be the first one there starting a fire, roasting a 
grizzly bear ham over the fire and eating it. I mean, like th- there are places where, yes, that needs to be done. Um, so, yeah. And it seems like those sounds like those interior interior grizzlies taste better than those coastal bears eating the rotten fish and everything. So at least, uh, if it, if it does get opened again, hopefully those will be some, some tastier critters than what you might get elsewhere. Yeah. But it's a doozy. It's definitely something that I've, you know, read a lot about and wondered about and, and I don't know exactly how, how we're going to figure that out in the future. But I do think that to your point, here in the lower 48, especially that's such a sticking point that I think will be, will be ill served if we don't require salvage. Cause we're, it's going to be hard to stand on. It's going to be hard to keep that stool standing upright when we talk about the conservation of these species, if we're just letting that sit in the landscape. So pay attention here. Cause this is a hell of a good service. It's called the wellness company. Picture this. Okay. You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested. You got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. So, so I want to, I don't think I did a good enough job of setting up the why to us talking about bears. It, or, or maybe I should rephrase it. Allowing you to set up the why. I want to hear your pitch. Why should a deer hunter start to bear hunt? 
Um, why should I go bear hunting? I was going to go. I was hoping to go this May. It's not happening anymore. But if I wasn't, if I was reserved about ever trying it, convince me that black bear hunting is something worth trying. Okay. Well, to me, the the spring season is very alluring, should be, for a whitetail hunter in that you can go hunt a big game animal in the spring and, and there's nothing else that you can hunt in terms of big game that you can turkey hunt. But uh, this idea that we could have this, gather some protein, have a wild adventure in a wild place at a time where you are not stealing your days away in the fall. Uh, and, you know, I'm a whitetail hunter. I know how precious those days in late October and early November are. And uh, so you can, hunt a, you can hunt a bear in the spring. Number two, the world is looking for bear hunters. I mean, whatever's happening ecologically has been highly beneficial to black bear. And it's, there's more opportunity than there's been in a long time. I mean, new states are adopting bear seasons. Oklahoma, Kentucky. Now, Florida had a, bear se- a new bear season, but it's been knocked back for now uh new jersey like bear opportunity is expanding um additionally you know this idea that that the meat is good Uh, a lot of people i talk to that are first-time bear hunters say i'm leery to kill a bear because i don't know if i like the meat and you know there's a solution to that problem is is that you're just gonna have to try some good bear meat and see if you like it and i i get it that if you don't want if you don't like it then you you may not want to hunt a bear but you don't who's to say that you can't give the meat away or you know people want bear meat people like it and the truth is that if it's handled correctly you most likely will like it if you like deer meat um and to me uh, mark bears are iconic of north american wilderness bears live in wild places and kind of being a whitetail hunter a lot of times we're hunting pretty pretty uh man influenced places and landscapes and and that's okay i mean we're hunting farm country we're hunting close to town you know best deer i've ever killed have been close to my house well when you're hunting bears you you typically are getting back into some of north america's real wilderness and real wild places and that is alluring that's what makes it fun that's what makes it a challenge because you're challenged you're pitted against uh, or you're not pitted against it, but I mean, you know, you're, you're in a wild place and, uh, that's different than deer. The whole idea of hunting a animal that could hurt you is adds a new twang to hunting. Um, guys that have done it a long time aren't as enamored by that. It's kind of, it kind of just becomes normal, but you know, I find new bear hunters oftentimes if they're on the ground and close to a bear, I mean, they're just, you know, it's, it's, it's really an exhilarating experience. Um, and then bears are just incredible animals. I mean, the biology of bears is just incredible. Um, they're a resilient animal. They're, uh, they're, they're a generalist, so they can live in so many different landscapes. There's four different color, well, actually, up to six different color phases of black bear. Um, they're, they're, there's just all these unique little nuances inside of hunting, the different techniques. You know, if you're in, if you're in the Southern Appalachians, 
you know, there's one way to hunt a bear out there, and that's it being treated by hounds. Uh, if you're out west, there's one way to kill a bear out there. That's to go on a classic spot and stalk glassing hunt, and that's awesome. Um, if you're here in the Ozarks, our bear hunting culture is relatively new, to be honest with you, because our bears just in the last 40 years have come back. And so, you know, we can hunt bears over bait, but we're kind of grinding out this idea of hunting bears in national forest without bait on the ground with bows. We call it the sheep hunt of the South because it's a low percentage hunt. It's a difficult hunt. Uh, you don't see a lot of game, super challenge. Um, so, you know, you can hunt them that way. So there's, there's diversity, there's good meat, there's challenge. And then there's just the, the historical precedence of the North American hunter, man, a lot of the patriarchs of our, of our hunting culture were bear hunters. They identified themselves as bear hunters, Daniel Boone, Teddy Roosevelt, Davy Crockett. I mean, these guys, they didn't, they didn't, I mean, they were deer hunters for sure, but that's not what they went home and told their wives and kids about. They went home and told them that, Hey, we're bear hunters. And <laughs> I think that's what we're seeing revived inside of, the times right now is that there's kind of this revival of the bear hunter, you know, kind of the conservation minded, intelligent, uh, you know, bear hunter. That's, that's really filling a space in that bears need, you know, bear habitat. You know, there's only so much really good bear habitat. And so bear numbers have to be managed to fit that habitat. Bears increase by 10% per year they're they get in trouble you know you can have 10 deer out in your front yard and not be that big of a deal you have one bear on your porch uh eating your bird seed you've got a big deal on your hands um so you know yeah. there is a more of a need to really manage these populations so that they stay in wild places and that's a real threat a real issue you know it sounds like a spin or a narrative just so that we can go out and hunt bears but but it's actually not I mean, it's just the truth. Bear numbers have to be managed or they will end up causing trouble and getting getting killed. There's places out in California where, well, there's places all over the country, but some real specific, unique places in California where these bears aren't hunted and they're just wreaking havoc. Um, so anyway, that's my spiel, Mark. So you convinced me. You convinced me, Clay. And... Uh... Now what I need you to tell me, and I'm speaking as, as a listener of this podcast, you've convinced me. Now I want to know, I've got, oops, I've got a decent budget, you know, I don't have a lot of money, but I've got an average amount of money to go on an out-of-state bear hunt. I want, this is going to be my first bear hunt. I want the quintessential bear hunting experience. Um, Lay out for me what you recommend as that best first bear hunting experience that you think is going to hook someone, you know, for life. Yeah. Well, because of the diversity of ways we hunt bears, there's really not a quintessential experience because there are two things that I would that I would say is that you could go on a do-it-yourself Western spot and stalk hunt in Idaho or Montana. That would be a classic spot and stalk Western hunt. Um, odds would be fairly low that you'd be successful. Um, I'm not saying you couldn't go out there and do it, but 
the first two years I hunted Montana, I did not kill a bear and I was trying to do it with a rifle, you know, and felt like I was going in pretty informed and it's challenging to kill one, but it's a fantastic hunt. Um, go, buy an over the counter tag, go out there, do a little bit of research on Onyx, on go hunt, find some good regions just talk to people. People will tell you where bears are. They really will. They may not tell you where their whitetails are, but they'll tell you where bears are. And uh, do that. So that that's category one. Category two is to go on a on an outfitted baited hunt in Canada. And uh, you know, all I gotta say is don't knock it till you tried it. Man, some of the best times I've ever had hunting have been in Canadian bear camps. Um, some of these hunts are really affordable. I mean, there's places in Quebec where you can go on a six day hunt and stay on some beautiful cottage on a lake and fish for under a thousand dollars. It's ridiculous. Uh, now the bear hunting is probably not going to be as, as good as some of the Western provinces, Manitoba, uh, Saskatchewan, Alberta, British Columbia. Those are kind of the El Primo black bear destinations of Canada and you're going to be paying in those in the more like $3,000 to $4,000 range for a hunt uh, more in British Columbia. But those are world-class bear destinations. Um, man, in you know, a baited bear hunt, I have yet to find a hunt where you get to interact with an animal in a more, and I use the word intimate and because I, 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 I can't find another way to describe it. But, you know, what other hunt are you going to go on where you're going to, see tons of animals every day at close range um you know I, not very i mean super close uh can be if you want it to be but you know a baited black bear hunt in canada is pretty cool yeah it's one of those things that i've seen and like the bear hunt that seems to appeal to me the most is the first that you described going to idaho or montana way up in the mountains, seeking them out, glassing them up, sneaking in on foot. That really appeals to me. Um, but I do see, while I'm not naturally predisposed to be interested in baiting, I do see your point in that it would be fun just simply to see the animals so often, so up close. Um, just that experience itself, I think that's got a certain allure. And, and and I've seen, I think I've seen you do it and many other people doing that on the ground even. Um, and bears coming very very close um that's got to be an unbelievable experience to have a bear touching your arrow almost yeah yeah well the there there is something really unique about about that kind of hunt you know i in one week of canadian bear hunting you will interact with bears and see more bear activity than you will in a lifetime of hunting out west spot and stalk and I, on a good bear hunt, that's the truth. I mean, last time I was in Saskatchewan, I did not kill a bear. And uh, it was because I was waiting on, I was being really selective. And we were at this wilderness bait that literally you would run bears off when you got there. And you would run bears off when you left. And we hunted about eight hours a day. And we figured in 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 six full days of hunting the longest period of time that we were not looking at a bear was about a two hour stretch so i mean you go looking at i, I never did the math but i mean you know uh 
48 hours of bear hunting and uh, every day we'd have about a two hour stretch where there was not a bear within 10 yards of us. I mean, we saw bear fights, bear breeding, three-legged bears, bears with mange, bears climbing trees, bears, you know, coming up to your blind. I mean, we saw more bear stuff than you would in a lifetime of any other kind of hunting. So that, that's the appeal of it, Mark. You know? Yeah, yeah, I can see that being pretty interesting. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I am bummed that I can't do it this year. I, I really was hoping this would be the year to make it happen. Unfortunately, I can't get a tag here in Michigan. But uh, next year, I think uh, I think it's in the cards. So, yeah. What what I want to end with is just a little bit. I'd love to hear from you on why all hunters, or why I think I think you would say this. Tell me if you think otherwise, but I think you would make the argument that all hunters have a stake in bear hunting because the attacks on bear hunting, as I've heard you describe it, are often a gateway to the larger enterprise of hunting. I've heard you say that we need to guard the gate. Um, can you tell me about that? Man, Mark, you've really done your research, man. This is, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I, so when I came into the bear hunting world kind of in a professional sense, um, just through Bear Hunting Magazine, uh, you know, my perception, and really seven years ago when I acquired this business was really kind of my first step onto the national bear hunting stage. And so my eyes just kind of popped wide open when I saw what was happening in the bear world and how much true persecution even in michigan mark michigan bear hunters association is a very well-run organization and they are i mean there wouldn't be bear hunting in michigan if it wasn't for these guys up there that are just truly fighters man they're smart they're they're working with legislators on a monthly basis year round uh fighting for the rights of of bear hunters in michigan um, but, but just what, you know, if you'd have told me that 15 years ago, I would have told you you were a conspiracy theorist. Ah, nobody's going to mess with our bear hunting. I mean, I live in rural Arkansas. We, we are not really persecuted here, but boy, in lots, lots of parts of the world, of, of the country they are. And so the, the kind of worldview that I developed or I kind of saw develop around me is that, uh, well, let me back up. What I then perceived was that most of the hunting community that was not interested in bears, it was kind of almost like the redheaded stepchild of hunting was this bear hunting because it was persecuted. People were afraid that they to say that they killed a bear over dogs. People were ashamed to say they killed a bear over bait because they thought it was controversial or they thought they would be persecuted for it in some way. And it was almost like people had this idea that, man, I just wish that would go away. I just wish the controversial stuff would go away. But what I think is the case is that in 2020, we have nothing left to give the anti-hunting community. Um, we, we really have nothing left to give them. The, 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 the chafe has been blown away. Maybe in 1900, we had stuff that needed to be chopped off of the North American hunting block. But in 2020, science and 
all these things have honed us down to a pretty tight little working mechanism that has worked and it's caused wildlife to thrive, wild places to be preserved. So we got nothing left to give them. And, um, and bears are the low hanging fruit for the anti hunting agenda. And so we are essentially the gate for the anti hunting community to come into the hunting world. And so even if you aren't a bear hunter, you should care about the preservation of bear hunting because we're the lowest rung on the ladder. And if that rung is taken out, then all of a sudden something else is the lowest rung. So we'll, and, and we know that the anti-hunting communities, uh, PETA, Humane Society of the United States, they are very vocal that their goal is to end modern sport hunting. I mean, they're not we're not making that up. Like they are organizations. I, I did a little research the other day for something I was writing. I want to say that uh, the Humane Society of America on their 2017 tax return reported that they had $258 million in the bank at the end of the year. Uh, these are massive organizations with massive amounts of money. And they are using that. They're very strategically and incrementally trying to stamp out uh, modern hunting. Uh, it's financially beneficial for them. I mean, we're kind of their cash cow. We're easy to portray in a certain way so as to elicit generosity from the uninformed. Um, and so we have, because we don't have $250 million in our bank account to build ad campaigns and do stuff people like you and me mark i mean we got to work our tails off if we want this thing to survive a generation you know and uh and and again i would have said this was a conspiracy theory 15 years ago i really would have i mean i just would have been like nah never gonna happen our hunting is safe um i don't see it that way anymore and if bear hunting is gone which I, I, I'm leery to say that it's on a trajectory of that, but it absolutely is. And I'll, I'll, I'll put a caveat. It is on that trajectory unless we do something, which we are doing something. So that is changing the trajectory. But left undone, 20 years from now, basically the legs would be taken out of bear hunting. You would probably just be able to spot and stalk bears and that's it. If you do that, you take the legs out of bear hunting. No one will be bear hunters. It'd be so difficult. It just would crush bear hunting. And then what's the next thing on the agenda? And this may seem far-fetched, but I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I mean, you know, what are they going to, what What will be the thing that they come after? You know, calling elk, you know, kind of sounds mm -hmm. unfair to me that, you know, these guys use, those elk, those elk bugles sound just like a real elk. And they go out in the woods in the breeding season, in the breeding season, and blow that call. And those elk just come running up, and they shoot them. That doesn't sound fair to me. Uh, you know, yeah. I'm playing devil's advocate. Yeah. I mean, like, the point is, is that the preservation of bear hunting is really relevant to all of us if we value hunting in general. And, uh, and that's what I'm trying to do, Mark, is just trying to uh, bring that awareness to people. And, uh, and really, if we're any, any group of people that is a minority big time, which we are, I think we're 4.5% of the population uh, as hunters, we're 4.5% of the American population, 
the only way that we'll persist through time is to unify. And I think we can do it. I, I think there's a lot of voices right now that are calling out for unification. And uh, I mean, even inside the whitetail community, you know, it's like, hey, don't dog that guy for the way that he hunts. Um, you know, he you don't know the shoes that he walks in. You don't know how much time he has to hunt. You don't know the difficulty of where he lives. If he kills 110 inch deer, it's awesome. You know, don't yeah. dog, don't dog, you know, Mark Kenyon for being selective in Michigan. Uh, that's what he wants to do. You know, unification. Yeah, leave me alone. <laughs> leave Mark Kenyon alone. Uh, you know, just unification, unification. We And so that means we have to look outside of our own self-interest, you know? I mean, because there's some people that just don't care about bear hunting. But if they're informed, if they understand the macro picture, they'll be like, you know what? Maybe I should. And, and, and I think it starts right. It, it's really practical. I mean, the solution to changing the hunting culture to a position of unity is is that inside your hunting camps, you don't talk disparagingly about somebody that hunts in a certain way or a guy that killed a bear with dogs. You you venerate these things, even if you don't want to do it. You know, um, and I've seen a lot of people kind of turn the corner and kind of go, okay, now I see why it's valuable that there are 17 states that have hound seasons. I mean, this is America, man, and it's working. Bears are thriving. Let the guys run their dogs. Um, you know, hunting over bait. It's like, yeah, I see the benefits of that. To be selective, um, to, to set an animal up for an ethical shot. To be able to have a good opportunity if you don't have a lot of time to hunt, it's like all these benefits and 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 I think us talking about it helps people see that and and uh, will bring unity, which unity produces strength, and uh, that's what we've got to have to to combat the challenges that we have, you know. So yeah, you make a you make a lot of strong strong points. I I. I'm right there with you. I'm glad that there's someone who's speaking to this stuff in particular on the, on the front with bears, because as you've alluded to, sometimes that, that side of our hunting community doesn't get as much of that positive advocacy as it probably needs. And, um, and you make a, <laughs> an interesting point with the guard, the gate kind of metaphor for the situation. You're right. I think, uh, what's next if we start losing things there. So, I, I hope that coming out of this conversation, there's going to be a lot of people that are that are maybe a little bit more interested in exploring this whole idea of bear hunting, and if nothing else, at least being a, an ally to the bear hunting community. If people listening are intrigued, want to learn more about this, and they want to check out all of the many different types of content that you're putting out there into the world, where can they go to find all that, Clay? You know, most of what we're doing right now is just branded as Bear Hunting Magazine. So they can check out our YouTube channel, which we've got a lot of videos up. Uh, so that's Bear Hunting Magazine YouTube. We have a podcast, Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. Um, and then our print magazine, Bear Hunting Magazine. We're the only print Bear Hunting Magazine in the world and uh, produce a cool magazine. Um, so, yeah, that's where people can find us. We're on all the social social networks. You know, we're Bear Hunting Magazine and then – I'm I'm on, you know, Instagram just as Clay Newcomb as well. But, yeah. Perfect. 
it's good stuff. I've I've enjoyed everything you've put out, and uh, I am I am a consumer myself and enjoying it. So I highly recommend it to anyone else out there. And Clay, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to to do this. This is fun. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Really, uh, thank you for having me on, man. One of these days, uh, I'd love to meet one of your mules or learn a little bear hunting from you someday. So watch out. I might be might be seeking you out. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right, and that is episode 346. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed that one as much as I enjoyed recording it. Um, as I've been letting you know, make sure to head over to themeateater.com. Check out all of our turkey content. We're just pumping out an insane number of turkey hunting articles. Really good stuff. I'm actually publishing five new articles this week talking to all sorts of different expert turkey hunters. So if you are getting out there after some thunder chickens, you got to check this stuff out. It will help you. So with that out of the way, I'm wishing you well, keeping you all in mind. Until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.